Hobo Radio, the official podcast of HoboTrashCan.com. You can share your thoughts on the show anytime by emailing Joel at Murphy's Law at HoboTrashCan.com. This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, and you're listening to Hobo Radio, so stay tuned. And now, your host... Miniature dog enthusiast, Joel Murphy. Hello again. I'm Joel Murphy. This is Hobo Radio. And I I put together this show today uh, to honor Dennis O'Neill, who's an editor uh, and writer of comics who, you know, he, he began writing in the 60s from Marvel uh, and in the 70s and 80s, uh, he worked for DC. He became the editor, uh, the Batman editor at DC Comics uh, in the 80s and uh, the 90s. And it, it essentially <laughs> shaped uh, a lot of my childhood uh, because I read Batman comics when I was a kid. I had no idea that the guy in charge of of writing all the stories that I loved was Dennis O'Neill, but his hand was definitely there throughout my childhood, guiding everything. And it, it, in so much too that he he created a lot of characters as well. Uh, he created Ra's al Ghul and Talia al Ghul. And uh, as I'm going to get to, he also was the editor who oversaw the Nightfall storyline that introduced Bane and his work, you know, it was influential. It was hugely impactful to comics. It influenced Batman, the animated series, which is the cartoon that I grew up loving. And, you know, so much of my Batman fandom and, and so many hours that I spent reading these comics and watching these shows uh, were stories that Dennis O'Neill either had written or was an editor for, and, you know, over the years, I, I learned that fact, and I, I discovered who he was, and in 2012, I decided to do an article for Hobo Trash Can, uh, because The Dark Knight Rises was coming out, and being a kid, when the Nightfall storyline happened, I, I've always loved the character of Bane, and so I wanted to write this article about Bane and, and to kind of introduce him to readers, you know, before the movie came out, because at the time, like it kind of did work out, uh, you know, eight years later that it, the Dark Knight Rises really did successfully fix Bane's image. But at the time, you know, he was kind of known as like uh, this very... Uh, emotionless one note character that was featured in Batman and Robin. And, you know, people didn't really know the comic book version of Bane. And so I really, because I loved him so much, I wanted to write this article 
about the comic book Bane and to kind of hype people up to be like, this is what, this is why this is going to be awesome. Uh, this is why you should be excited about this movie. And so I reached out to the, the people involved and I, I interviewed uh, Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan, who were the writers, the writer and the illustrator who created Bane, you know, uh, Chuck Dixon did the backstory for the character and then Graham Nolan created the look of Bane. But I also wanted to interview Dennis O'Neill because he was the editor and I got that opportunity to talk to him, which was such a treat for me because like I said, he, he had this huge impact on my childhood and I kind of knew when I did the article that I really just, it was a very specific thing. I'm, I'm writing an article about Bane I need to, like, I got to talk to him about it. Uh, it was a very focused thing. I knew I wasn't going to be able to use a lot from him in the article, but because I had this opportunity, I kind of took it to to interview him as much as possible. And I talked to him for about 40 minutes. And most of it, like I said, no one's ever heard it before. It just, you know, it. I I pulled the quotes that I needed from it for the article, but the rest of it is just audio that I've had that obviously I have treasured this opportunity to get to talk to someone who I really loved, but I, it never, it just kind of has been sitting on my computer. And so when I saw the news that he passed away, you know, I thought about the interview and I thought about how generous he was with his time. And I just thought that it, it felt right to share it that I, I it felt like other people should hear uh and it's honestly it's a 40 minute interview it's mostly about creating bane but it every answer that he gives is so fascinating to me i wish i had had hours and hours to talk to him i i barely scratched the surface of his, this amazing man and his amazing career but I did get to spend a little bit of time chatting with them, and I I just think that you guys all might enjoy hearing that, and so I just wanted to share that with you today. Uh, I hope that if you like Dennis O'Neill, that this is a nice tribute to him. If you don't know who he is and you're giving this a shot, God bless you, and uh, I hope this gives you a sense of who he was, and um, you, you know, if you enjoy it, just go, go check out some of his work. I mean, you, you're familiar with it, but just like... You maybe peruse that Wikipedia or something and realize how big of an impact he's had on your life, even if you didn't realize it. Uh, but I hope you enjoy the interview. I really love uh, how sweet he is. And, and at the end, the fact that when he was sure I was done with all my questions, that he uh, wanted to go so he could have dinner with his wife. Uh, and Again, it, it's it was such a great moment for me to get a chance to talk to him and and to get to tell him how much of an impact that he had on my life, which is I'm sure a conversation that he's had a million times in his life. Uh, but it obviously meant a lot to me, and I hope that this interview uh, gives some uh, solace to to any of you who are also fans. Uh, so, without further ado, enjoy.
Well, I, I wanted to ask you first, just uh, background. How did you uh, get into comics, and how did you start working for DC? I got into comics because I was a newspaper reporter in a little town in southeast Missouri, and I noticed that I was seeing comic books in drugstores and bus stations, and then it occurred to me that I hadn't seen them for years and years. They were very important to me when I was a little kid. Uh, but then I just totally, you know, the high school girls' uh, interests, other interests. Uh, and one of the things I had to do was uh, write about uh, fill the kids' page on Saturday, which was hard to do because it was during the summer because there was no uh, school activities. So I played a hunch and thought maybe comic books are making some kind of comeback. And I did a little very rudimentary journalism, and I was right. So I get uh, I did a couple of stories on the return of comics, and then Roy Thomas got in touch with me. His parents subscribed to the paper. And he had just accepted an offer for a job from Mort Weisinger at D.C. And I thought I might get a third story out of Roy. So uh, driving back from St. Louis on a Sunday afternoon, I stopped at his apartment, and I was absolutely gobsmacked for two hours as he introduced me to this whole subculture. He was co-editor of Alter Ego, which I, I think was the best fanzine around at the time, and his current version of it is still one of the best. Uh, so, he, you know, I was, I think my girlfriend was bored out of her tree sitting there, <laughs> but I was fascinated, and I did get a third story out of, you know, local boy does something really cool. And a month later, uh, or so, he sent me the Marvel Writers Test. He had not worked for Mark very long. He'd taken a job with Stan Lee, and Marvel was just beginning to explode. Uh, and Stan had be, uh, originally done everything himself. He'd done all the writing and all the editing. But he took on a couple of guys that didn't last very long, and then, uh, well, one, whose name I know, but I'm too charitable to related and uh and he hired Roy and it still wasn't enough they needed another assistant so Roy sent me these four pages of fantastic four art without copy and that was the writer's test if I if my mission should I choose to accept it was to add words to those pictures and who wouldn't do that so <laughs> I, I I did it and sent it off and one about my journalistic business, played a prank on the police department, managed to alienate virtually everybody in town who was an authority figure. And then I got back to late to the office after covering a suicide in the local park. Everybody was gone and the phone rang and uh, it was my girlfriend who had accepted a... Uh, a fellowship to study philosophy, graduates work in philosophy at Boston U, and there had been a screw-up. Her money had not come through, so she was alone in a strange city 
living off what she could shoplift, and you know it was a cry, and she was sick. And virtually at the same time, I got a letter from Roy saying that um, Stan had liked my writer's test, and I had the job. So the whole universe was telling me to go east. So by 10 o'clock one night, another reporter and I packed my car, and I started driving east. I kind of rescued Anne in Boston and then continued on to um, to New York, hooked up with, uh, I, I got here to New York and went to Marvel's offices on 59th and Madison and there was nobody, there was nobody on the block. None of the stores were open. It was an ordinary Monday morning. Uh, but it wasn't ordinary. It was a Jewish holiday, which we didn't have back in <laughs> Cape Girardeau. So I, the only name I knew was Flo Steinberg from Stan's comic book pages. And she was in the phone book, and I called Flo, and she explained Jewish holiday, and she told me how to get in touch with Roy, and I did, and uh, we were off and running. Strange story. I, I, it was all. It was a series of accidents, and I think I didn't expect it to last. I thought, well, I, I can do this. This would be a neat thing to do. I had visited New York when I was in the Navy, and I thought, well, it'd be cool. I'll, I'll live here for a year, and then, then I'll go back to the real world. Uh, that was almost 50 years ago. I never quite got back. <laughs> <laughs> I found that I uh, had an aptitude for, for this, to my surprise, and through Anne, whose uh, parents were Heretical pacifists. I fell in with uh, the peace and civil rights movement, uh, which was uh, something I did and still do believe in. We were right. The war was wrong. And, um, you know, there was just, I, I, Got a chance to write a book. I got a chance to write a novel. There just kept being reasons not to go back to the Midwest. By that time, there was a kid on the scene. And, uh, as I said, I, I went back to Cape Girardeau about three years ago with Roy and Gary Friedrich to do a convention. I had driven through it once before, but that was the first, uh, time I'd really spent there, and it's about three times bigger. I got lost a lot. Uh, you're not in town too long before you're made aware that it's a hometown of Rush Limbaugh. Um, okay, it was very strange for me to get interviewed by the paper that I once worked for. <laughs> and anyway, that's, that's that story. That is a really great story, actually. I, uh, yeah, I definitely was very cool hearing all that. Um, I, j just to skip ahead here a bit, um, so when you, uh, so the Nightfall storyline, you're, you're the editor at, uh, DC. Are you, you're the Batman editor or you're the actual, like, what, what was your title during Nightfall? Do you remember? Yeah, sure. I was, uh, on paper, I was an editor. Okay. I think they hired me with the title senior editor. Um, 
I'd been approached by Dick Giordano when I was still working at Marvel. Uh, eventually, for reasons I'd, <laughs> I'd rather forget about, uh, I accepted, after stalling for a long time, I accepted Dick's uh, offer, which was a very nice, very generous offer, to a guy whose stock was not awfully high at the time in the world of comics. I'd had a very rough 10 years or so. But um, uh, it was understood that I would take over the Batman line, which only consisted of two books. And then while I was at I had five or six other books to edit. I remember Firestorm was one. Blue Beetle was another. Um, we were all terribly overworked in those days. But I was hired, and I think it was kind of understood that I would be hired as a hyphenate, as an editor-writer. I don't know that we ever stated that in so many words, but Paul Levitz did about six months later. And so I was officially an editor. Uh, the reality was that my main concern and my main job was Batman. So how did the... Uh the Nightfall storyline begin to take shape. When I talked to Chuck Dixon, he he said that you guys had a, a summit and basically you came in and had every, like sort of the, the outline for it already planned out. So do you remember how that began to take shape and what you were... Well, to... yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, originally, another writer, um, I, I ended up buying the idea from him. Uh, and I can't think of his name. He was one of the British guys. Uh, wanted to do it as a two-part detective. You know, that would have been probably not quite 44 pages. And I thought, we can really do some storytelling with this. We can do things that we've never done before. Uh, because we had uh, actually killed one, uh, one of the, the Robins, I thought the, the audiences will, will probably buy that I'm retiring Batman. And uh, so that's what we came into that, that summit with. Those summits were one of the joys in my life because, you know, I would be alone uh, and in a retreat house in, you know, kind of a club room with bowling alleys and stuff with, with, you know, like 10 or 12 extremely bright, creative people for three days or so. And we'd play poker at night, and during the day, we'd figure out stories. So, uh, Chuck's right. We came in, my uh, assistants and I, with, you know, an idea of what we wanted to do. I don't, probably we had something on paper. Uh, one of my assistants tended to, to he, he liked to make outlines and to have that. But uh, the rest of it, you know, it just transpired all these really smart, bright guys uh, batting ideas around. And it was one of those things where at the end of the day you had a computer screen full of notes and you didn't exactly know who came up with what. Uh, uh, it was the best thing about being an, an editor because it was, uh, it was really, really fun.
the kind of thing I got into being a writer for, you know, originally. It, a lot of it is not like that. But that's, that's how we came up with that. And then we kept telling the executives by telephone that we were going to take that man off the board and somebody changed their mind three months into the stunt and I had to uh, virtually overnight create that subplot where we uh, Bruce Wayne actually was, was not off the board. He was disguised and badly disabled. Uh, so when you say off the board, do you mean he was going to be done completely or, or he just weren't going to see No, well, there would have been no point in doing that kind of story if we weren't going to redeem him. But I did want to keep him off stage for a year. Okay. And I, what I don't think the, the executives understood was um, at the end of the year, if you had missed that year of reading Batman, you would not know that anything had happened. All everything was going to be as it was. That was in the the plan from the very beginning. I'm not sure they got that uh, until it was too late. But it's, you know, it's all right. That's uh, as somebody said about Michelangelo. If you want to paint the big ceiling, you got a deal. It's uh, I had the privilege of telling stories with a very good storytelling tool, Batman, who is probably recognized by most of the people on the planet. And I had lots of freedom relative to other media. It was a great gift, and I, I loved doing it for 15 years. Uh, do you remember how uh, Chuck sort of got tasked with uh, creating Bane, or how Bane began to take shape in the you know those meetings? Well, we knew that we needed somebody to cripple Batman. Uh, it's like uh, Asriel was created uh, specifically to fill a plot need, to be the, 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 the somewhat mentally deranged individual who would take over Batman for a year. Uh, similarly, we needed somebody who could credibly take Batman off the board. And uh, I don't know who came up with what. I think Chuck did the vast majority of the creative work. He, uh, yeah, he, he said that just sort of like when you guys were talking that he had mentioned that it was very difficult to, to come up with a villain. And then I, I guess you sort of said in my own, we're just like, see what you can come up with or, or Something like that, and he worked on it a bit and then came back to you guys with everything. So. That sounds about the way it would have gone down, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, um, do you remember any of the... The other thing that was fun talking to him was uh, he said that you guys were tossing around a lot of names for the character. I don't know if you remember... One of the names he said was Doc Toxic you had tossed around. Do you remember any of the other names for Bane? No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> but again, it would have been part of that process to play with names and see what we could come up with and uh you know it's a comic book it's it's fantasy melodrama so uh you, you go for the sound of the name bane sounds you know kind of harsh and draconian 
I, and do you uh, were you looking for a certain type of character with the story, or, or like were there certain aspects you wanted to make sure Bane had, or, or any of that? Well, we knew that he would have to be very physical, and because credibly he would have to beat up Batman, who was the baddest ass in North America, unless you count all the guys who are Superman types. And uh, I think we didn't want him to make him just a dumb thug. I don't know whose idea it was, probably Chuck's, to make him smarter than Batman, as well as Bonnier. And once you have those things... The other pieces might tend to fall in place. Um, I don't know whose idea the prison was, but I thought it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely perfect for this character uh, to have him born in the worst possible circumstances and take it from there. Uh, the Venom thing I had used in an earlier story, I got a... FedEx package yesterday. They have just reprinted those Venom stories. Keep getting those surprises every once in a while. But that was just a an arc I did for Andy Helfer. Um, I came up with the idea, and it was it was inspired by my own experience with addiction and those kind of problems, and thinking one day, well. You know, people who screw themselves up with drugs and alcohol don't ever start off saying, well, I think I'm going to become a slobbering, hopeless, pathetic addict. Yeah, that's my goal in life. Where's the needle? They always start off thinking, I need this. Uh, there is a deficiency in me. This will su supply something I need. I just read that um, Whitney Houston died partially of cocaine use. Enormously beautiful, enormously talented woman, but she had some kind of demon inside her. But I'm sure she didn't sniff her first line of blow thinking, yes, and this will be my downward path to perdition. It was, you know, useful in some way. So that was the starting point for that. Uh, and I, as I said, I think the rest of Bane probably came Mostly from Chuck and probably fractions of it from everybody else in the room. But we, we were taking notes, or Jordan was taking notes about the stories, but not about the people. We really weren't worried about who was going to get credit for things. And really, we never thought that 20 years later anybody would remember, much less care. Uh, j just to go back to uh, for a second to the the venom thing, uh, since you you know talked about it, addiction, were you involved at all when they decided to have Bane kick Venom? Because that ended up being a storyline in the comics. Was that sort of no? I uh, that, that was after my time. Okay. Uh, so uh, well, I wanted to ask you too. I know that uh, you wrote the novelization of the, the Nightfall storyline. So I just was curious what that was like. And also, writing that, um, again, just like when you were writing it, I, I'm curious, I guess, how you see Bane and how you approach the character when you wrote him. I took my cues from 
the comics. I mean, that was that was the oddest and steepest mountain I have ever climbed because uh, when they offered me the novel, I said, oh, you know, I can't possibly do that. I have a day job. You know, I'm an editor of a comic book line, and uh, I am writing some of those comics, and I am involved with in other aspects of this stunt. And you want a hundred thousand word novel on top of all that. Uh, and Mary Fran said, if you let somebody else do it, you'll never forgive yourself. And that was, it was a fairly compelling argument. So we, uh, decided to see if I could bring it off. And, um, that got complicated by the fact that I was 40,000 words into the 100,000. We were going to go home for say, for Christmas. I had a little primitive Macintosh laptop computer. And somewhere in Pennsylvania, I fell asleep at the wheel, and the car hit a retaining wall and flipped over three times. And we spent Christmas morning in an intensive care ward. Uh, so, you know, the, the situation we were under was we absolutely had to have it on a given deadline. It had to come out the same day that the comic books came out and that uh, BBC radio adaptation was being done. And I was flat on my back uh, having smashed a car to smithereens. Uh, I lost two weeks, and the combination of a supportive wife and a very good editor, and we got through it. I'm really glad I did it. I would never want to do anything like that again. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was a nice thing to remember having had done, and an just, just <laughs> terrible uh, to go through. But uh, as I said. Charlie and, and Mary Fran, I had would come home from work every night and grab a bite and then go to my office and write. That was my life for about four months. The last three days, uh, Charlie Kochman, uh, it was over a weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, the procedure we had was that every Saturday morning, Mary Fran and I would drive out to a shopping mall at the end of Brooklyn, and we would meet Charlie there, and I would give him what I had done. And we'd talk a little bit, and I'd go home and get back to work. Uh, the last three days of the editing process, Charlie and I spent in my office in Brooklyn, my home office, and Mary Fran was bringing in cookies and lemonade every few hours and we worked 11 or 12 hour days and did a line by line edit and beat the deadline on Monday morning by, by something like an hour oh wow so as I, I uh, don't think I could have brought it off without Charlie or Mary Fran uh, well I think I, I told you in my email but uh, if not I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you again I just r really loved that book uh, I loved your novelization of the story. Um, I bought it when it came out, and I was a huge fan of it. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's not a bad book. Uh, I, I have never reread it, but uh, people tell me it's okay. I, nothing to be ashamed of. 
Well, I even I, I like a, a few of the like little tweaks and stuff that you made to the story, but uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of it, so I, I'm glad that. There's something to be said for working under that extreme pressure because you don't have time to worry about things, and I think in a way it frees you. It's like working against comic book deadlines or newspaper deadlines. You just can't worry and fret and wonder what's going to happen. You have to get it out. And I think, as I said, that that can kind of free the creative process. I know that there are things in the book that just occurred to me while I was sitting at the computer, and I put them in. No reason not to. Uh, well, the, the other thing too, I, I just wanted to ask you, sort of changing gears a little bit, was uh, so for for people who are, are you know might go see The Dark Knight Rises, uh, who are completely unfamiliar with Bane, just how how would you describe him to someone who didn't know him? Uh, a genius IQ, and uh, because of genetics. Uh, gifted with enormous physical strength, but um, because of the circumstances of his life, he is a total sociopath, a totally amoral sociopath uh, with a disproportionate ego. He is uh, not, I mean, he's evil because who wouldn't be evil if you're born at a maximum security prison in a backward country uh, and you you come to awareness in that environment and then getting uh, managing to escape from there you have no opportunities nobody's offering you a job uh, especially not commensurate with your uh, abilities so of course you turn to crime and because you are genetically gifted you are enormously good at crime. He is, in a way, a tragic figure, and yet I, it, it's hard to feel sorry for him. I like that. Uh, the, the other thing, too, I, I really wanted to ask you was, both uh, Chuck and Graham Nolan say that they've never seen Batman and Robin, the movie, Um so I was wondering if you saw it, and if so, what you thought of uh, the Bane in that movie. Well, you know, a fellow my age doesn't like to use really foul language, and uh, <coughs> you're putting me in a position where I feel like doing it. But No, I mean, I thought that uh, every time I talk about those two films, I have to preface it by saying the director whom I spent some time with is one of the nicest human beings I've ever met and probably the nicest major showbiz person. Uh, but I don't think he got Batman at all. He kind of blamed the studio, I think, for the second one. And uh, I, I know it's a given. It's the same uh, problems or the same strictures that Chris Nolan is probably working under. The studio says there have to be this many opportunities for merchandising and it has to run this long and so on and so on and so on. But it's that business of if you want to paint the big ceiling, you got a deal. Anybody that wants the privilege of telling stories to tens of millions of people is probably not going to have completely free hand. Uh, and it becomes part of the, the storytelling challenge to incorporate those elements into it. So that Bane was, you know, a big dumb clock. 
and as such, not very interesting. We've seen big dumb clucks a lot before. Uh, if, if they had even shown him working a crossword puzzle or reading a book, it would have helped. But it's like when, uh, do you know the Nero Wolf novels by Rick Stout? Uh, no. No, well, uh, they're, they're, I, uh, I always highly recommend them. The wolf is a huge fat man who, uh, is the best detective in New York, and Archie Goodwin is, is not, not the comic book Archie Goodwin, the fictional one, is his right hand man, and, uh, wolf is grouchy and cranky and erudite, vastly red, and uh, brilliant. When they did the Near Wolf movies, they had two of them in the 30s. Fat Man, well, he's jolly. We all know that, that fat men are jolly. So they had Edward Arnold playing laughing a lot, and Archie Goodwin, sidekick. Well, we all, I mean, in, in Stout's books, if Wolf hadn't been the best detective in New York, Archie would have been. But sidekick, well, they're stupid, so they got Lionel Standard to do a dumb guy, you know. <laughs> and Stoughton, while he was alive, never allowed anybody to adapt his movies again. Well, it was kind of the same thing with Bane. You know, the stereotype. Big, dumb crook. And the character as realized in the comics was so much more interesting than that and had so much greater, I think, uh, and entertainment potential. I mean, that that's always the bottom line. What am I going to get out of this in terms of narrative? Well, big dumb clucks aren't, you know, not since the Three Stooges has that been really a very viable uh, stereotype. And what we had with Bane was something relatively original. So, there wasn't much about those two movies I liked. I, I, you know, I recognize that uh, everybody was, was doing what they thought was best. And they had some, I read the screenplays because I did adaptations. They had, there were stretches of decent writing in them. But, it was like not getting what Batman should be. Uh, almost a reversion to camp. Yeah, certainly the the last one was definitely verging on camp. Yeah, which takes, you know, that that was dead as a doornail after the, uh, the Adam West show went off. And rightfully so, I think. It was a one-line joke, and the, the joke got worn out after three years. So do you, uh, have you been following the Christopher Nolan movies, and do you sort of have higher hopes this time around? Well, I think the first, I don't need to have higher hopes. If the, the one that's coming out is as good as the first two, I'll be happy. Uh, yeah, I, um, I wrote the novelizations of, of the two they've done so far, uh, and have, you know, I've, I've been around them. I've, uh, I've not had any direct contact. I, I had a chance to meet Chris Nolan, but it would have involved flying out to L.A., more or less just to see the movie and to meet him 
And I thought, I've always hated L.A., and it, well, he might be an interesting guy to talk to, but it, it's not worth that much hassle. Uh, but I have uh, no reason to believe it's not going to be very good. I have kind of deliberately not trying to find out too much about it. I don't, and, and since the uh, executive suite at D.C. has changed so much, I don't know if I'll be asked to participate in any way. I don't even know if I'll be <laughs> sent screening uh, passes. And if not, we'll just go up to our multiplex and sneak in in the middle of the afternoon and watch it. <laughs> uh, well, the, I, I know that we're about out of time here, so I'll mm-hmm. let you go. But I just, what what is your involvement with DC these days? Like, what, you know, how much do you work with the company and do you, are you still employed by DC? Or? Oh, no, 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 Lord, no. I have not been employed by DC for, I guess it's over 10 years now. Uh, yeah, it was a very amiable parting. Uh, I knew that I was going to quit, and the three guys who worked for me, who any one of whom could have taken over my job at any moment, they were all great, and I'm I'm still in fairly close touch with them. But we, you know, all told Paul that we're not going to be here this time next year. We'll give you a year notice and we'll help any way we can with finding replacements or whatever you need. Uh, Paul talked me into staying an extra year so I could get a better retirement package. Uh, you know, they waive medical benefits at you and you become a whore. Yeah, sure. <laughs> of course I'll do it. Uh, but we we quit, and uh, for uh, six months, I went in every Thursday morning to teach uh, writing and editing to the younger editors. And then I had my great death scene. I was having lunch with a friend in a little restaurant about three miles from here, and I dropped dead on the floor, and I was... A dead corpse for a couple of minutes until they revived me. Uh, and so I, I, I lost some teaching time with that. And when I, I got back to it, we all pretty much agreed that I had taught as much as I could teach. Uh, my, ever since then, it seems like three or four times a year, they call and they want a comic book, not in continuity ever, but that's fine. I wouldn't wouldn't want to have to read, you know, two years worth of backstories in order to write one. Uh, and fairly often I go up and do a talking head gig, and I think these are incorporated into DVDs. Sometimes, I, I, the last one I did was about the Batmobile, which... I haven't seen the, the Batmobile for the new movie, and it was not a subject. I mean, I, I didn't lean on that aspect of the mythos very hard. But uh, you know, it's pleasant enough to sit there in front of a TV camera and have have a, a nice person ask you questions for an hour, and then you know, maybe forty seconds gets into the final cut. <laughs> but I've done a fair amount of those, and. Uh, I guess in a funny way I represent the company at conventions. I think we are scheduled for, uh, 
three or four this year, one of them in Bristol, England. Haven't been, I've, I haven't needed my passport in about 15 years. Uh, I, if, if they or anybody else calls with, with a job that, that's interesting, I don't, don't worry about money anymore, but if the job sounds interesting and it's something I think I can do, sure. Uh, happy to. I work about, uh, Two hours a day, and that's a, that's nice. That's better than sixty hours a week, as, as I did sometimes when I had uh, the day job. So it's uh, I, I am on very good terms with Paul, who is no longer officially a member. Uh, I had a very pleasant conversation with Ann Deal uh, after one of those um, TV shoot things. So we stay in touch. I guess I'm up in their offices once every two or three months for an hour or two. Uh, well, cool. I, I'm glad that that you're still involved. Like I said, I mean, I uh, I'm a huge fan of that period of Batman when you were the editor. Just and the Nightfall storyline was one of my favorite things. So I, it's very, it's been great to talk to you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Oh, happy to do it. If there's anything else I can do, let me know. But I'm going to go eat dinner now. All right. Well, thank you very much. Sorry to hold up your dinner. but I, No problem. I really Bye-bye. appreciate it. Hobo Radio is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on iTunes. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. We have to ask. It's a podcast where we answer the question, are you going to eat that? What will you leave behind? Why get out of bed? Will you be our neighbor? I'm Marty. And I'm Jonathan. We're two hosts. Infinite Universes. We We have have to to ask. ask. New interviews every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes or online at wehavetoask.com or with the other great podcasts on the Peak Sloth Network at peaksloth.com. Peaksloth.com.